This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show. It's Wednesday. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And this is the Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, questions about something going on in your life, whatever's on your heart or mind. All you have to do is call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. Or you can use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app and send your questions in if you are driving in your car. The safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the Call Now banner at the top of the screen and you will be connected directly to our studio producer. Hey, because it's Wednesday, we've got a Bible study here tonight uh, at Calvary Chapel at 7 o'clock. You can watch it at calvarysa.com. Um, and um, uh, tonight we'll be teaching in Genesis, still in chapter 1. This is our third study uh, in the book of Genesis this time around. So we're going to start, I think, in the sixth verse. We're going to go all the way through uh, day five of creation tonight. Uh, and that starts at 7 o'clock. And, of course, tomorrow, because it's Thursday, Paula will be live in studio with me on the date day edition of the program. So if you need any encouragement, especially ladies, you have any questions for Paula, she will be here and we'll do the best that we can for you as well. Let's get right to the questions that have been sent in. I wanted to finish uh, with a question that uh, I started on right at the end of the program yesterday and didn't get enough uh, time to, to do it justice. Uh, but it was a question from our mobile app that came from Chip. And he's talking about applying 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 when dealing with politics and dating. Now, Chip, the, I've never had this question asked about being unequally yoked with politics. Um, but, but with the dating and marrying and those kind of things, this is so important. The verse says, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? Now, I think I answered the question basically, but the one thing I really want to deal with here is the pain uh, that, as a pastor, I've experienced over the years from people who went... Um, headlong into these unequally yoked relationships. By that I mean a believer and an unbeliever. 
Uh, there are some unequally yoked relationships even where both are believers, where one person is sort of hoping to get to heaven and the other person really wants mm-hmm. to dig in. And there's always so much pain, more pain than I can communicate. And this is, and I think I mentioned this yesterday, this is one of the passages of Scripture that almost nobody will listen to. God loves you. He's trying to save you some pain. And yet we get involved emotionally with somebody. We see somebody who is attractive to us. And we just think, well, it'll be different. Or maybe I'll save him or I'll save her. And there's never, ever a a positive result. Never, ever is there a positive result. There's always going to be pain. Now, it is true that many of the unbelieving spouses come to faith in Jesus Christ. But it's after years and years Excuse me, it's after years and years of pain that the people have to deal with. There's just no benefit at all, Chip, in um, being emotionally involved with somebody who doesn't love Jesus. It's, 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 it's an impossible concept for me. And as an unbeliever, I wouldn't have believed it. My pain as a pastor is all the believers who simply discount this. It's almost like, well, God doesn't want me to be happy. It's not that. He wants you to be happy. He wants your life to be filled with joy. And it just can't happen when one person in a marriage is committed to Jesus, the other one's nothing to do with that Jesus. There's simply no common ground, and these relationships do nothing but break hearts and cause pain. So I wanted to emphasize that on the program today, Chip, and I, I had to rush through it a little bit yesterday. I was laughing a little bit uh, earlier with this idea of being unequally yoked in politics. I don't think there'd be anybody we could do anything at all with. So I hope that, that answers your question sufficiently. Um, you know, the, 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 the other context that I'll talk about that passage in is when we enter business relationships. When we enter a business relationship with an unbeliever, our goals are different, our methods are different. So this is just God trying to spare us all kinds of pain. So I hope that um, is enough, Chip. Thank you. Uh, Alfred has a criticism of me. He said, Pastor Ron, you talk about going to church like it matters for salvation. There are so many churches that teach bad doctrine or are hiding the truth that I've decided not to go at all. My standards must be too high. And if I'm reading your question right, Alfred, that last um, part was was uh, sarcasm, maybe tongue-in-cheek. Your standards are too high. Here's the thing. It's not like we have a choice. And whenever I hear somebody who responds as you did with this question or this statement, Alfred, um, you, you know, I think we forget who he is and who we are. What would make any believer think that we would have the option of being involved in a church or not? Now, there are really, really good churches. You're right. There are lots of churches teaching bad doctrine. There's a lot of churches that are out and out heretical. There are churches that uh, only want you to feel good and tickle your ears kind of thing. But we have to invest in the effort to find a church where we can plug in. You see, church is where we use the gifts that God has given us. Church is where we are ministered to by others through their gifts. Church is a family. 
Alfred, you obviously don't come here to Calvary Chapel, but these people are my family. And this is a wonderful place to be. Does it mean that if we don't go to church, we're not saved? No, not necessarily. But what you need to really honestly ask yourself, Alfred, is why you don't want to go to church. And you can make all kinds of excuses, but church is something that a believer ought to do because he or she wants to do it. We shouldn't be able to keep Christians away from church. And I fear, Alfred, that we have had so many people culturalized. Well, you know, Sunday's my only day off. I work so hard. I've got other things that I could do with my time. Now in our culture, I'll watch online. I have people all the time, Alfred, that will come to me and say, well, it's okay, Pastor. I've been here, but I watch you online every week. And tell them, well, that doesn't help me. I can't see you. We don't get to use your gifts here at the church if you're watching online. And I realize there are valid reasons for doing that. I really do. But I think most of the time it's just, I don't have to get up. I can go to church in my pajamas. Still get taught. But church is a place we need to go. You know, Alfred, your perspective on church needs to be reevaluated in line with the Word of God. We don't go to church to have our needs met. Now we get taught, we get equipped to do the work of ministry. But church is in large part where we do the work of ministry. And if you're not faithfully attending a church and participating, and I don't mean just going to church. I don't know why that's happened where Again, in our culture, people feel like, well, I'm serving God. I go to church every week. That's not serving God. It's important that you go, but it's equally important that you minister to your church. And I've said this before in this radio program. My church has heard it from me a hundred times. It's when somebody really plugs into their church body and they offer their bodies to the Lord. They offer the gifts that He's given them to Him for His glory. That's when their walk begins to flourish in abundance. So, Alfred, you've got to ask yourself, why do I think I have the choice? God said, do not forsake the assembling together of the saints. That's not just hanging out with other Christians. That's referencing the church body. Now, remember, that's Hebrews chapter 10. And the whole book of Hebrews is punctuated by warnings uh, to a church that's sort of drifting away from the Lord and that drift has turned into sort of a free fall and in large part because they're neglecting the assembling together of the saints. Church ought to be the most fun thing you do all week. Now, I, again, I realize that pastors like me were not exciting um, you know, we're, we're at least we shouldn't be trying to entertain anybody. But imagine the smile on Jesus' face when you go to church for no other reason than He's here. And you say, okay, Lord, use me in the life of somebody else who's hurting. Prepare some divine appointments. When you get the opportunity to pray for people, to pray with people. Every week we have people come forward 
Everybody in the church has an opportunity seeing who comes forward. They have an opportunity to, to, to give them a hug and pray for them. You ought to be going, I don't know if your church or, or a church that you can go to, Alfred, have multiple services, but you ought to at least, at the very least, go to church to be taught and then next, take the next service and serve. That's just the way it ought to be done. Again, when I see people doing that here at Calvary Chapel, I can watch their lives change before my very eyes. It is that important. So if your standards are too high, that's your sarcasm, uh, then you need to repent and stop acting like the things that God tells us to do is something that is an option for us. Here is a question from Daniel. He said, uh, um, your church is too far from me in San Antonio. Are there any churches you can recommend? Um, yeah, Daniel, I can. And I, I don't know where in San Antonio you are. But uh, we've planted uh, a handful of churches here in the San Antonio area. Um, there are other Calvary chapels here. If you're in the northwest side, um, uh, Grace Calvary Chapel, uh, Pastor Joe Marcus is a wonderful guy, uh, nice and loves God, and, and he's, he's a good teacher. Um, uh, on the far northwest side, we planted a church, uh, Pastor Ellis Goins and his family out there. And um, I've known Ellis for 13 years. And he's um, he's somebody that would would you could depend on. <clears throat> excuse me for teaching the word. Uh, church that we have in North uh, Central San Antonio, uh, Calvary Chapel Solid Rock. Pastor Troy Neely. Troy was with me for ten years before he went out and started the church. So I know you're going to get taught well there. Uh, if you're on the other end of of uh, church in New Braunfels or San Marcos. Uh, there, there are churches. If you're on the south side, uh, we've got a Calvary Chapel. It's a small one, but we've got a Calvary Chapel uh, south side. Uh, Pastor Joel Ortega. So we've got churches all over the place. I'm forgetting. We've got one on the east side, Pastor Anton and his wife, Misty. Um, uh, so uh, we've got churches spread all over San Antonio. There's no reason for you not to be involved in one of those churches. I know all of those people. I know their hearts. And uh, Daniel, you will be blessed. Just go and get involved. Go and get involved. Thanks for the question. Roberta says, Can I explain 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7? Um, I hope so, Roberta. Let me read it first. Uh, is Paul writing to the churches in Thessalonica. He says, For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so until he is taken out of the way. Uh, this is a passage of Scripture, Roberta, that deals with the rapture of the church. Um, and the, the secret power of lawlessness is the, the power of evil, and it's at work in our life. But now the Holy Spirit is restraining it. I like the word restraining it better uh, from the King James. Uh, he is the restrainer. He is, and it doesn't seem like it in our world because things are so dark, so evil. 
It doesn't seem possible that the Holy Spirit is restraining evil. In other words, it's evil seems like it's out of control, but God says, I've got a governor on it. It's, it's going to be okay. And what that means is until the Holy Spirit is no longer working in his capacity to restrain evil, um, then things aren't going to be too bad. Now, the idea here, Roberta, is that uh, when the rapture of the church comes, uh, we'll be taken away. There'll be no light left. I, I know that's hard to imagine, but there'll be no light left at all in this world. And it's because the Holy Spirit working through the church, converted believers, born-again Christians, um, we are an impediment to the works of evil, to the darkness that's at hand. I know, again, it doesn't feel like we're holding it back, but we really are. How much worse would things be if, in fact, we weren't here where there was no resistance, where there was no evangelizing, where there was no conviction? You know what it would be like? It would be like the times of Noah, where Genesis says every inclination of man's heart was only evil all the time. And those are important connector words. Only. All. And that's what it would be like. Jesus said it's going to be like that. When Jesus returns. Just as it was in the days of Noah. People are going to be partying. They're going to be giving in marriage. And and and, and uh, completely oblivious to the things of God. And that's when judgment is going to come. So, Roberta, here's what's going to happen as we get closer to the last days, and we are in the last days now. As we get closer and closer to that moment where Jesus is going to come and get his church, Second Timothy chapter 3 says things are going to get much worse than they are now until the time comes when the rapture of the church happens and then light goes away. I don't know if you've ever been in such darkness, Roberta, that you can't even see your hand in front of your face. Well, in a spiritual sense, a moral sense, that's what it's going to be like when the church is taken away. It's going to be good riddance. Those Christians are gone. And they're going to come up with some plausible explanation why Christians weren't worthy of going into the next phase of the world, sort of a cleansing, and, and, and yet the world is going to get darker and darker and darker. And that's because the little bit of light that still remains in these last days has been taken away. So that's what it's all about, Roberta. If you want uh, a more detailed explanation, you can go to calvarysa.com and you can look either look at my notes uh, on that chapter or you can uh, listen to the teaching that, that we did. Everything we have, all of our resources are free uh, on the website, so you're more than welcome to have them. Phones are quiet. We'd love your calls. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. JT asks, do you hold that God only speaks through his word, or do you think God also speaks to us in other ways? Uh, JT, I think God speaks to us in lots of ways. Now, uh, two things are important to remember. Overwhelmingly, God speaks to us through his word, overwhelmingly. Uh, And if I was to put a percent on on it, I'd say 95%. But the idea is the other ways that God speaks, when he speaks to your heart, there's times when God has spoken in my heart. 
not not in, a, in an audible voice sense, but it was so powerful, so profound that it was as though it was audible. Um, but you see, if I didn't know his word, I wouldn't be able to test those spirits. So you, everything that we think we hear God speak to our heart needs to be then validated by the word of God. That's why John says in First John chapter 4, uh, verse 1, that we're to test the spirits because not every spirit is from God. We're completely impotent when it comes to testing the spirits if we don't know the word of God. So um, God speaks to us in his word overwhelmingly. He also speaks to us um, through um, um, just our times of quiet with the Lord, times when we, we go out to seek him and he'll speak to our heart. He'll also speak to us occasionally, JT, through other people. Now, it's not a prophet kind of other people that I'm talking about. It's just God will use somebody in a normal conversation or maybe somebody will come to see, you know, God's really had you in my heart and I've been praying for you. And then they'll say something without even knowing what they're saying and it will confirm or affirm something that God has been speaking to your heart about. I also think occasionally God speaks to us through circumstances. You know, the Apostle Paul wanted to go into the province of Asia to proclaim the gospel where it had never been proclaimed. And he believed with all of his heart that's what God wanted him to do. But three on three occasions, the Spirit forbid him. The Spirit stopped him. Circumstances made it impossible for him to go. And so he listened to that voice and, and went another direction. Um, and yet, God would later send him to Asia Minor. That's Ephesus and and uh, the, the churches in the in the uh, uh, Revelation seven churches in Revelation. Um, and he would he would send him there. And, and Paul describes uh, the ministry there as a great door of effective ministry has been opened. So yeah, there's lots of ways that God speaks to us. Uh, but it is almost always JT through his word uh, maybe if you're at, in church and your pastor's teaching and you know God's got a word for you that it just it's like he's speaking to you and nobody else so God can speak a lot of ways but it's again almost always and it is overwhelmingly through his word and I know I'm repeating myself but it's so important if you don't know God's Word, if you're not spending time in it, then you're not going to hear the voice of God. You may hear deceiving voices, but you're not going to hear the voice of God. When you invest in His Word, God will reward that. We reap what we sow. If we sow to the Spirit, we reap from the Spirit. And God will speak to you. So, JT, I hope that answers your question. You know, I have, um, and I said this yesterday in the program, I've been saying now this this month, in fact, next week, um, it will be uh, 29 years uh, that I've been saved. And um, I'll bet I've heard God's voice, and again, not audibly, but but it spoke spoken in such a way that was so profound and so pointed at a particular direction or a particular thing that I've been wrestling with, uh, that I knew it was him. 
uh, I'll bet I've heard that maybe 20 times. I'm, I'm, I'm just guessing on the number. One was to come here to San Antonio. Um, the call to be a pastor before that. Uh, I just knew. I absolutely just knew. And here's the thing, JT, that we all should be. If I know I've heard from the Lord, nobody can shake me from that path. Nobody. When we started a free school, and the free school almost went, made us go broke, um, it looked like I'd made the worst decision ever. And yet I knew I heard from the Lord. And this is, as you know, our 20th year of our free school. So, and that's just one example of many, multi-medical and, and, and so many other things. I'm, in fact, going to the Philippines this year in August, the end of August, early part of September. And, uh, you know, I, I just don't travel. I don't like it. I don't travel well when I travel. Um, one day we were here in a, a pastor's discipleship class and uh, we're talking about opportunities and the Lord was just sort of you're not hearing me you're going to go because I just automatically rule out any trips and he said I want you there so I know I'm going I know I'm going to be okay because he wants me to be there but it's just again you have to know the word of God JT I love the opportunity to talk about that, so thanks for giving that opportunity. We've got 30 minutes left in the program. We'd love to have your calls and questions, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. We'll be back in two minutes. Got a question for Pastor Ron and the word to stand on for life? You can send it to him via email at PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. That's PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to our program. 30 minutes left. 340-9585 is our primary number for your calls. Remember, Paula will be live in studio with me tomorrow and tonight here at Calvary Chapel. Uh, we are in Genesis chapter 1. We're just getting started in the book of Genesis. So join with us. You can go to calvarysa.com or we always have room on Wednesday nights. So you are more than welcome to join us and uh, you will be unbelievably blessed by the people who, who are here. Let me get a question now from Stephen. He says, what do you think about near-death experiences? Um, Stephen, I... I, I I said in response to the last question that we're to test the spirits um, and we test them against the word of God and near-death experiences and people that write books on these near-death experiences, uh, they're, they're, they're really on shaky ground. Um, 
I know people that have had near-death experiences. A, a, a guy I call a friend, his name is Bob. Um, he was involved in a really bad motorcycle accident. They had to bring him back, was shocking him several times. And he said, uh, Pastor Ron, I, I, I saw the light. I went to the light. I know I was loved. I know it was heaven. Jesus was there. And this guy's not a believer. He doesn't think he has to because he thinks he's okay. And I've talked to him and said, you know, the devil masquerades as an angel of light. So these things are only true if they are validated by what the Word of God says. Now, one of the reasons that's important, Stephen, is because, um, you know, we'll, we'll see these books, um, 90 minutes in heaven or 23 minutes in hell, those kind of things. And, and while the stories are, are heartwarming... Um, you know, the, the thing is, the Bible tells us that if somebody goes to heaven like the Apostle Paul did, Paul said he's not permitted to tell the wonderful things that he saw. And so when we have people that ostensibly go to heaven, they have this vision, they have this dream, then they come back and they start telling everybody what they saw. Um, we know that's not true. Because Paul said man is not permitted to say those things, to tell those things. So I just think it's really important that we are skeptics, uh, we're grounded in the Word, um, and, and if somebody has a legitimate near-death experience, they see the Lord or they see heaven, which is possible, the Bible permits that. Um, truth is, we won't ever know it because they're not permitted to tell. So I think that's why the Bible matters so much. There's a lot of lying spirits out there, Stephen. We have to be really, really careful what and who we listen to. Uh, Justin says, Pastor on in John chapter 20, why did Jesus not want Mary Magdalene to touch him? Well, Justin, he didn't say don't touch me. He said don't cling to me or don't hold on to me. Now, we can imagine, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, by the way, because Mary Magdalene, there's such emotion, there's such pathos there. And imagine when she goes to get him and she's um, uh, not able to find him, uh, and then, then a gardener, she thinks, speaks to her, and she goes, they've taken away the body of my Lord, tell me where he is, I'll go get him. Now, she was not a big woman. How was she going to carry a, a man who was average weight, who had 75 pounds of spices, who, who was wrapped in linen. She, she didn't think of it. She just wanted to be with him. And that's when Jesus, the so-called gardener, turned around and said, Mary, and instantly she knew it was him. You can imagine the death grip that she had on him. You're never going to let you go. I'm never going to let you go. And Jesus said, no, for I've got to send to my father and your father. See, don't hold on to me now. I've got work to do, is what Jesus was saying. So it wasn't touch him. You remember Thomas. He, he appeared to Thomas a little bit later, a week later, in fact, and, and said, Thomas, touch, feel. That's what Thomas said. And unless I touch his hands or touch the scars on his side, I won't believe. Well, Jesus said, touch and feel. So he wasn't averse to touch. He wasn't averse to, to Mary being filled with joy and holding on. But what he, what he was saying was, look, I've still got work to do. Now, what he had to do 
was to descend into the lower parts of the earth and proclaim freedom for the captives. He would, according to Peter, preach a message in what we call paradise, the, 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 the abyss, or the, the Greek word is abuso. And it was a message of freedom. He's going to take those who believed, heard God's word, heard his promises, and believed. And he's going to take them from paradise, Abraham's bosom, to heaven with him. And so he, he just said, work, I've got to descend and ascend. I'm going to go to my father. And Mary got it. Her feelings weren't hurt. She just knew that uh, she had work to do. He said, now you go tell the others and Peter that I'm alive, that I'm not dead. So it wasn't touch him. It was to hold on to him. She could not go in her state where Jesus was going on that particular afternoon. Miguel asks an interesting question. Pastor Ron, how do you explain to unbelievers that Jesus was a real person? Miguel, I don't think anybody who is is even remotely honest, uh, if they want to know if Jesus was real, I, I don't think there's anybody who can deny the evidence is overwhelming. The evidence of Jesus' life, um, the stories about the things that he did is recorded uh, by secular historians. It's not just in the Bible that Jesus was real. He was a real person. Even the, the, the unbelieving skeptics that we get every Easter and every Christmas season, you know, talk about the real Jesus, the historical Jesus, they all know he's real, he's historical. And I would tell somebody who says, well, how do I know he was a real person? And say, just dig in. The, the evidence is overwhelming. Because if he was a real person, then they got to deal with how he's changed the world more than anybody in the history of our world. In a small, relatively small section of land, Jesus' ministry wasn't all over the world, with a relative few number of followers, this man changed the whole world. Now, how could he do that if he wasn't real? Secondly, how could he do that unless God was with him? That's what Nicodemus said when he came to him. We know that you're a man sent by God. Otherwise, nobody could do the things that you're doing. And so the evidence for Jesus' life is overwhelming. The evidence for his murder, his death is overwhelming. Equally overwhelming is the evidence. This isn't blind faith I'm talking about, Miguel. The evidence for his resurrection from the dead is overwhelming. And if you present that to somebody, then all they have to do is follow the, the trail of crumbs that you've left them, and they'll find out. One thing I always do, Miguel, when I get questions like this from people, is after saying to them what I've said to you, um, um, I, I challenge them to find out. Now, you can just dismiss the whole thing of Jesus. You can parrot what other unbelievers say. But I challenge you to find out for yourself. Don't be a sheep and just repeat what you've heard other people say. Oh, the Bible's full of contradictions. I always say, name one. Well, how do I know Jesus is real? I take him to the empty tomb and tell him to work backwards. You know, um, Miguel, on... Uh, 
this Genesis study that we're doing on uh, Wednesday nights, um, uh, our first study, uh, I opened with, with uh, just four words is all we really studied that night was in the beginning God. And I said, if you can believe those first four words, then it's easy to believe the rest of the Bible. Well, for the unbeliever, the one who has doubt, or the cynic or skeptic, that's why I always take him to the empty tomb. If you can disprove the resurrection of Christ from the dead, then we're all fools for believing. So start there. Dig in honestly. And once you do, then you work backwards. It, it becomes really easy to believe in the beginning God. There's a book, Miguel, um, called The Case for Christ. It's interesting read. It's it's not uh, at such a difficult level that people struggle with it. It's written by Lee Strobel, and it talks about his pursuit of the historical Jesus and, and examining the empty tomb, which led him to conclude that there's only one thing possible. This man really was God. He really lived. He really died, and he didn't stay dead. So I hope that helps. Uh, here is an anonymous question. It said, I listened to your teaching from last Sunday in Luke. How do you personally deal with the fact that people who won't like what you said will attack you or purposely distort your teaching? It must be hard to teach something knowing you will be hated. Well, for you, for the audience here, um, we were in uh, Luke, uh, the end of chapter 23, and um, basically I was telling people that we've got to take a stand for Jesus. We've got to take a stand for Jesus when our children come home and say, I think I'm gay, or I'm, 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 I'm a boy biologically, but I feel like I'm a girl trapped in this body. Uh, and we've got to take a stand. Um, we've got to take a stand for righteousness against the evil in this world. And when you do that, Anonymous, then you know you're going to be attacked. I know that I'm going to be attacked. I, I wish you could have been here in the room. You know, you could. You, I did three services. And um, in the room, I'm very aware that there are people hanging on every word because they believe it with all of their heart. And there are other people in the room that are looking at me like I'm some bigoted Neanderthal. That's just part of the way it is. They didn't like Jesus. They didn't like Paul. They tried to kill him. I always think of the 40, I call them the 40 skinny guys who took a vow of hunger until Paul was dead. Um... That's just part and parcel of sharing the gospel. The world that we live in hates us, but we shouldn't take it personal. It's really because they hate him. And that's important. So I don't really deal with it. I don't listen to um, ugly or general accusations. I, I, you know, if I get emails that are ripping me up I just I just delete them um, if somebody wants to talk to me face to face I'm happy to talk to them but uh, you know I'm not going to take worry about what people say about me online I, I do not have uh, any connections to social media at all I don't tweet I don't do Facebook I don't do um, Snapchat or Instagram or any of the other things um, so I protect myself as well uh, the one thing that does bother me a great deal, Anonymous, is when people distort what I said. 
And sometimes they'll come to me and say, well, I can't believe you said this. I said, I didn't say that. Yes, you did. And I'll make them go back and listen to the video of this of the, the, the passage. Said, okay, if you can find that, you mark the time and come back and we'll talk about it. But I know what I say when I'm up there. Unless I misspeak, and we all misspeak occasionally, uh, unless I misspeak, I know what I've said. I also understand that people don't always hear what I say. My pastor once told me that, that when he preaches a sermon, there's always three sermons. He said the one people hear, the one he thinks he gave, and then the, the, the real one. And so people who aren't really good listeners are going to distort it. If they are not distorting it intentionally, I can deal with that, no problem. But if they're distorting it intentionally, then that's something that uh, that is upsetting to me. Um, it's not hard to teach something I know where I'm going to be attacked. Uh, I just feel like that's my job and I've got to do my job and um, I'm in pretty good company if they are offended by what I said. Now, it's never my intention to offend, but if they are offended, um, it's on them and it's not on me. So I hope that helps. Samuel says... Can you explain why pastors do all the talking in church and regular people get no input? Well, Samuel, pastors do all the talking because that's the way the service is structured. We teach God's Word. And it wouldn't be very effective if I teach a verse and say, okay, so what do you think out there in the audience? And suddenly we got people shouting across the room. Um... The Bible calls pastors a gift to the church, Ephesians chapter 4. Um, you need to be taught. And ostensibly the pastor is studied to show himself approved, a workman rightly dividing the word. And then he's using his gift, supernatural gift of teaching, uh, to communicate what God's put in his heart. So... Um, you know, regular people get input, but it's just not in front of a crowd. Sometimes, Samuel, when I get this question or get comments like this, um, usually it's from somebody, and since I don't know you, please don't take this personal if I'm wrong, but usually this is somebody who thinks they really have something to say. When everybody listen to the pastor, I think they should listen to me. And usually that's pride and ego and arrogance that's playing in. So, um, if you want input, talk to your pastor. Talk to your pastor. But that's what happens in church. The Word is taught. We worship the Lord. Usually in our culture, that's music. Um, and then the Bible's taught. Or a message is preached. And that's the way it's supposed to be. That's worship that is orderly. It's worship that has a point, purpose. So, I'm assuming that's what you meant, Samuel, but I hope that is a satisfactory explanation. Um, getting pastor questions today. Mark said, should pastors try a little to be more politically or socially correct? Um, you know, pastor's job, Mark, is to tell the truth. And I'm not worried about being politically or socially correct. Um, again, it's never my intention to offend anybody, but the truth is supposed to be declared. 
And what people do with that truth is between them and God, not between them and me. So um, when I say homosexuality is a sin, I had an email um, today, I read it, that um, somebody said they won't be satisfied till I stop saying homosexuality is a sin. It is. I'm just quoting what the Bible says. Uh, and, and so, again, I know that's going to offend people, but that's on them, as I said. That, that doesn't really have anything to do with me. So uh, if we start worrying about being politically or socially correct, then we are going to forfeit our, our ability to be used by God as a pastor or Bible teacher at all. Here is a question. I talk a lot when phone calls don't come in, don't I? Here's a question from Reggie. He said, uh, 1 Corinthians 14.33 says that women should be silent in church. Why don't we obey that verse now? Reggie, it's a good question, especially in light of 1 Timothy um, chapter 2, uh, where, where the Lord says, I do not permit a woman to teach her of authority over a man in the church. And, and so we take that passage as instruction for today. Uh, in the Corinthians passage that you asked about, we don't take that passage as instruction for today. Why Why? and what's the difference? Well, in the First Timothy passage in chapter 2, um, um, Paul appeals to Genesis to lay a foundation for what he said. The, the context of the, of the chapter is orderly worship. And then after saying that, women should be silent in church. Or in, in, in First Timothy, I do not permit a woman to teach her of authority over a man in church. Uh, then he goes and establishes Genesis as a foundation for uh, Eve was deceived. Um, Eve, the mother of women. Um, and, and so what we see is being not being given the role of a pastor teacher is a consequence of Eve being deceived. And the hermeneutic, hermeneutic is simply the, the, the science of interpretation. The hermeneutic is that since there is the appeal to Genesis, it's a foundation that never changes. In the Corinthians passage, chapter 12 all the way through chapter 14, uh, Paul is correcting an out-of-control church. And um, in, in the, the Asian culture, the Oriental culture that, that existed then, uh, Corinth was in Greece, but the culture was still uh, an Oriental culture. Uh, uh, they would they would sit in church, women on one side, men on the other. In Corinth, because it was out of control, they'd have women shouting over their husbands. You know, now they're free. God's given them a voice, and they're using it in, in a way that dishonors the Lord. And so the church was out of control, and everything from their use of the gifts of the Spirit, the, the church would to 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 just the, the interaction. Uh, even the, the way they partook of, of uh, the Lord's table, um, just completely out of control. And Paul is basically saying, sit down, be quiet, grow up. But there's no appeal to Genesis, so we know then that was a local situation. The wearing of head covers and, and uh, long hair, short hair uh, applications uh, for Paul's letter to Corinth. Uh, all of those things um, were local because there was no broader application or foundation that was laid. 
So that's why we don't obey it now. You know, Reggie, if you read carefully in First Corinthians, um, we've got, in the book of Acts as well, we've got women who are prophetesses, uh, women who are always encouraged to pray in church. Obviously, they had to be able to talk to do those things. So you also have to understand that, that it can't mean that women cannot utter a word in church. Because they were prophetesses. Philip had four daughters who were prophetesses. So all the gifts were available to everybody except the one, and that's the one people want to go. So um, women should still respect, uh, show respect for their husbands and respect for the body of Christ, but um, certainly women can talk. You know, Reggie, I was asked this question about somebody who said, well, why don't you make Paula be quiet in church? I said, who can make Paula be quiet? And why would I want to? Love just oozes out of her when we're here at church. That's a that's a, a a gift, a tool that God has given me that I would never give away. So you gotta understand the context. I hope that makes sense, Reggie. Joe says, uh well I didn't realize we only had three minutes left. Joe says, When we're in heaven, Will we be aware of our loved ones who are suffering on earth or in hell? Um, Joe, this is hard to explain because we live in a in a pretty linear existence. Um, but, but heaven is a whole new order of things. And we know in heaven there's going to be no sadness, no sorrow. There's going to be no tears. Our tears are going to be wiped away. But, but, but it's going to be a completely different order of things. And so we won't be aware. Now, I call it a brain swipe, for lack of a more theological term. Um, uh, When we are in the presence of the Lord, when we're in heaven with Him, and we're experiencing that whole new order of things, then we're going to lose all memory of the things that would cause us pain. Certainly, we would all be in pain if we knew we had loved ones who were being tormented in hell. But all of that is going to be put away, and we're not going to remember those things. Um, if, um, you know, uh, we go to funerals, you always hear things like, well, I know he or she is looking down on me, making sure nothing happens, or taking care of me. That's not true. They're looking at Jesus. So, Joe, when you get to heaven, the one thing that you're going to do forever is stare into those eyes. And I don't mean that in a sense like, oh, great, great, I'm going to stare in his eyes forever and ever and ever. But you won't want to turn your gaze away. You're going to hear the voice that sounds like many rushing waters. You're going to hear teaching and explanations for things. We're going to learn every minute of every timeless day. Uh, The one thing we won't do is look at all the chaos going on here on earth. Can you imagine, Joe, for even a moment, somebody at the wedding supper of the Lamb being called out and saying, you know, I need you to check this out. Your loved ones are on earth and they're having a hard time. We're going to be completely devoted to Jesus. Completely devoted to Jesus. And it's going to be the one thing, the only thing, that we really forever want to do. So, Joe, I hope that answers your question. Well, that finishes our time today. Phones were quiet, but I hope you enjoyed the program. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. Tonight, 7 o'clock, Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. 
Tomorrow, Paul will be live in studio. May the Lord bless you and keep you. See you tomorrow. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The word to stand on for life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Calvary.